I'll be too nervous to. I'll probably lost the words. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Lost Words podcast. I'm joined today by Jason Sobel. Jason, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Happy to be here. And uh, sorry to be here under such circumstances with what <laughs> happened last week at the Ryder Cup. Uh, I mean, look, I think I, was, I wasn't I was so upset because I kind of saw it coming. Um, you know, I kind of planned for it. it. It was tough because I went on a couple of shows and you know, did my own podcast and everyone's kind of like, oh, you're being so negative about the European side. And I just think you just... You just got to look at it like America, you know, average ranking of ninth in the world. It wasn't the same kind of things where, you know, they've always had Tiger and Phil and they've always had JT and Spieth and Dustin. But this time it was like all of the best players, all at their peak. Like Dustin was the oldest at 36. Like there was just no hangers on. There was no like guys they gave a sympathy pick to. Like Scotty Scheffler was the last one in and he's an amazing pick. So it was like... What what could really I mean, first thoughts for you were did the twelve men that you wanted to go went to that Ryder Cup? Do you think for the U.S. side? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't have a problem with any of the picks, and I probably would have been on the same page with all of them. I know a lot of people wanted Kevin Na, a lot of people <clears> wanted <throat> Kevin Kisner. I didn't think they were good course fits. I had thought for months that Jason Kokrak would have been a really interesting savvy play. To be on that team he, he drives it a long way and he puts it really well but he just didn't play well enough going into those final few weeks before the captain's picks were made so no i i thought they were the right plays it's really hard to look at harris english and say well you just missed qualifying for the team and you won twice but hey we've lost a bunch of these we have to think further outside the box so maybe if you hadn't played as well if you were 27th on the list we'd think outside the box and we'd take you, but because you were so high on the list, we're not going to take you because it's not outside the box enough. Yeah. Everyone wanted the U.S. team to think outside the box. So that none of that thinking really makes sense. So, no, I, I didn't have a problem with any of the picks. And uh, what I really like from Stricker, and I've been preaching this for years, and I feel like if there's a differential between the U.S. team and the European team over the last two decades that oftentimes, not every time, um, but oftentimes I feel like Europe is more prepared and have a better plan in place going into the event and into that week. And I think that a lot of times the U.S. team and granted, this is a little chicken or the egg kind of thing where, hey, if you're up, you can keep going about it as you plan because it's going as scripted. And if you're down, you have to start scrambling. But a lot of the times the U.S. team has been down. And I feel like the captain and the assistants have essentially been scrambling and writing down names on cocktail napkins, trying to figure <laughs> out pairings for Saturday and trying to figure out what they want to do on Sunday and how they can win this thing. Whereas Europe has had a better plan. Uh, I thought and it's hard to say Steve Stricker isn't in this conversation now, but I thought the two best captains I had seen in the last 20 years since I've been covering the game were Paul Azinger on the U S side and Paul McGinley on the European yeah. side. And what they both had in common was that each of them was prepared for everything they said here's what we're going to do they knew it months in advance and they said if a doesn't work then we'll go to b and if b doesn't work then we'll go to c and they were flexible but they had sort of flexible plans in place to and they knew where they were going to go with every move it's like they were playing chess and the proverbial like the other team was playing checkers and so i don't know that steve stricker necessarily even had to do that with this team really but he had a plan in place, and the plan was, I'm not going to 
uh, overbear them with uh, with speeches in the team room every night and bring in these guys trying to fire them up. I'm not going to show them videos. I'm going to treat them like they're adults, treat them like they're professionals. And it really worked well. You know, tell, tell one guy, hey, after your practice round, if you want to go take a nap, go take a nap. <laughs> if this guy after his practice round likes to sit, sit around and have a beer and hang out and watch TV, he can do that. If someone else wants to go get therapy because they have some sort of injury, go do it. And the fact that he let them be themselves, I come back to what Scotty Scheffler told our guys on Sirius XM afterwards, which was it really sort of felt like a regular week other than we're all wearing the same colors and we're on a team together. But he said it didn't it didn't feel any more stressful or high pressure than any other week. And I think that's the tone that Stricker set, which was so important for this team. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting you mentioned Paul McGinley there because I think I was listening to Luke Donald on No Lane Up podcast recently, and he was saying about how Victor De Buisson just got given his own room. Like, you know, he didn't he didn't want to merge with the team. He kind of just wanted to, you know, stay with his friends, close friends, play PlayStation, have a few drinks, and that that's how you prepare. And I think that's such that's such fine man management. And and going into the week, I felt. I was giving, I said, you know, the USA have got the massive edge in terms of talent, but I felt like Podrick Harrington would have the edge in captaincy. And the reason I thought that is I just, I just felt like Podrick Harrington was such an outside-the-box thinker. And all his stuff during the week was like, you know, I'm not just going to put Rory and Larry together and Rahm and Sergio together because they're nationalities. Like, that won't happen. They've got a system in place. And then I think he just outfought himself. I think he just had too much going on in his mind. I thought, like, you know, straight away the first pairing was Rahm and Sergio. And I was like, well, you've been basically saying all week that's not going to happen. I know it's a bit of mind games, but I just wonder if he changed his mind. And then, for me, I really wanted to see um, Rory and Hovland. Like, I thought, to me, that would have been a great pairing. Um, I thought that that I, I kind of felt... If you look back at the last two Ryder Cups, you had Paris and Rory took out Thorburn and Olsen, And in Hazleton, he took out Andy Sullivan. I just felt like he almost deserved... A better partner and you know he wasn't at the very top of his game which is a problem but you know he's been showing flashes of it and I just thought that the fact you know it's a bit harsh on the impulsor because of what he's done in the Ryder Cup but I felt like he was dragging the impulsor around a course that didn't suit him sure. um, and I know he made up for that in the singles like he would and Rory did as well but it just felt like to me that how those guys both played on Sunday confirms that they probably shouldn't have played together during the week it obviously just didn't kind of work it felt like it was just kind of mashed together just to you know because it oh you know Ian Poulter beats his chest enough and Rory screams enough it'll work and it was like an emotional pick as opposed to a sensible one I thought going into the week that the U.S. pairings were really easy to figure out in yeah. fact uh, it turns out they weren't quite as easy I thought Xander uh Shoffley and Patrick Cantley would play four matches together right. no sweat I thought Jordan and JT would be together for four straight matches, unless something went wrong, unless you that plan A kind of fell out of place and you need to go to plan B. And so coming into it, I was thinking, well, Steve Stricker really just has to come up with two pairings for each of the sessions if the other ones are okay. And so he actually did kind of stick and move a little bit and change some things around. For Europe, I thought it was much tougher. And so because I didn't think there were any like real natural pairings, that I find it hard to criticize Padraig for any of the pairings that he put together. And I know he's... He's a numbers guy. He's an analytical type of guy. And I know that he was looking at the analytics. If anything, Steve Stricker might have actually beaten him in his own game. For years, yeah. Europe has used those statistical analysis to uh, to look at their players and figure out, okay, these players should be playing together in foursomes. This player should be teeing off the, the even number tees. This player off the odd number tees. I feel like the U.S. basically finally figured out years later, years after the fact, <laughs> Hey, you know what? They keep winning and they keep looking at all the analysis and they keep going over that. Maybe we should do that. And I feel like they sort of finally played catch up and it finally worked for them. But as, as far as the European pairings, 
Yeah, I thought Rory and Hovland. I, I had heard rumors of Rory and Hovland wanting to play together beforehand. I, I just I feel like that's a lot of second guessing, though, Tom. I, yeah. You know, look, uh, Rory and Hovland play together, and let's say they play two matches together on Friday, and they go 0 and 2. All of a sudden, we're sitting here saying, "How do you take two of your best players, put them together, and then you've got weaker pairing somewhere else?" Where, uh, you know, if those guys don't succeed, then brings down the rest of the team. I don't know. I, I didn't really have a great sense going into it, like I said, of what the European European pairings would be. And so I, I don't have a great sense of how we should criticize them necessarily coming out of it. Uh, you know, Paul Casey played a lot of golf. Uh, I guess he's one of your horses and I guess you're supposed to ride him. But he never really seemed like he had much the entire week. I, I just don't know where else you go. I mean, essentially, Europe needed six, seven, eight players to play their best golf, and that didn't happen. They needed probably six, seven, eight of the U.S. players to play below average golf, below their abilities, and that didn't happen either. Yeah, I mean, uh, and that was the thing. It was kind of like, well, actually, the, the, the very original pairing I had in mind was Rahm and Hovland. I just thought, you know, just put those two guys out and just let them lead from the front. And then as it got later on in the week, I kind of heard the Rory and Hovland rumor and they kind of liked playing with each other. And I thought that was great. Um, but like you say, it was the ultimate decision between do you do two real power pairings of, say, Rahm and Hovland and, and Rory and, and Sergio or whatever, or Casey and Hovland or something like that, or do you try and split them down the board like you said? Um, and, I, and I think he went for that approach, right? He tried to give himself a chance of winning every match as opposed to really competing in two. Um, and it was tough. And I think, I mean, I was at Wentworth for the BMW PGA and, you know, you were just, that final day, you know, I was following Westwood for a little bit in the morning and he was playing terribly. I was following Wiesberger and he was really trying not to lose his spot. Shane Lowry looked pretty relaxed because I think he knew he had a pick regardless. Um, mm. But none of them were really, no one was stepping forward. And, you know, when we were in Paris, we had Molinari, we had Fleetwood both at the top of their game. You know, Tyrrell Hatton was coming into his own. Rory McIlroy was Rory McIlroy. John Rahm was young and exciting. But this year, it just felt like it just really felt like everyone was kind of on the down. Even even Victor Hodland, who's been playing brilliantly, was kind of looked like he was reaching the end of the year. And and it just felt like where was that spark going to come from? Sergio Garcia had been ball striking the lights out all season long, so I was pretty confident in him. But then you looked at the course figures, and he was terrible there for the three PGAs he's played. So I was like, am I just talking myself out? Because it's a different scenario, match play versus stroke play. Um, so and then and then I was like, Tommy Fleet was not been playing well. So what do you do there? You know, he's just gone. You know, just four out of five in in Paris. Um, but Molinari's not there, and there's no natural pairing for him. And I thought, well, you could just put him with Lowry or Sergio. And, in the end, that didn't happen. It was like, well, my, my first instinct was to criticise Harrington for the pairings, you know, and it's very easy to do that in hindsight. I think that's why I wanted to give it kind of a week to think about it because the first, you know, come Monday, it was like, right, well, Harrington just got that all wrong. And that's basically what I said in the podcast. That he, he was terrible. The pairings were wrong. He, he got it all wrong. And even like the singles, I felt like a bit of weird order. And then you go, like you said, like what, what do you do? Like I'd already said in a piece uh, with Oddschecker that, the, like you said, the USA pairings were pretty simple. You had JT and Spieth were guaranteed. Xander yeah. and Cantley, like you, I thought they were only four matches. And then I kind of thought, well, Brooks and uh, Berger played together at the Presidents Cup. They like each other. You know, that's a natural pairing as well. And then I heard this kind of DJ Morikawa one, and I really liked the idea of it. But like I miss, I guess many others, it was like, is Morikawa healthy? Is DJ? Uh, is, is Brooks healthy? And and suddenly you start to think, you know, maybe maybe you can take them on. And I was like, 
that was just a really poor choice like to think that you could take on dj morikawa and be fine i mean dj I, I don't know how you feel about dj and his Ryder cup career but i feel like he's been unfairly treated he's been on the losing team so often because of what's gone on around him and and he's kind of been expected to go so well i mean paris was a bad course for him and then he's always just been mixed and matched with partners as opposed to really giving a natural pairing i mean he got sort of shooting with brooks and they fell out and he, you know, he was paired with kind of like Furyk and, and people like that in the past. It, it yep, never yep. felt like there was a natural pairing for him, um, whereas Morikawa looks really suited. So I said that the U.S. pairing seemed pretty easy to me, Spieth and JT, Shoffley and Cantley. That was the one where, you know, I, I spent weeks trying to figure out the pairings and thought I had it. You could have given me a few more weeks that I was not <laughs> coming up with DJ Morikawa for the simple fact that, I, I get that sometimes the opposites attract kind of thing and, and that can work, but there's not really like an alpha dog in that group. I know a lot of people say DJ, DJ is the ultimate alpha in golf. Yeah, but DJ DJ is not the guy that's getting you fired up. Brooks Kepka even said it before uh, they started play last week that when he had played previously with Brant Snedeker, he's like, I'm kind of a calm guy. I need someone with me who's going to get me fired up, get me excited, get me like smiling and pumping my fist. And Snedeker had been that guy for him. And he thought Berger could be uh, that way for him this past week. DJ and Morikawa didn't really have that guy. Neither one of them is Patrick Reed. Neither one of them <laughs> is going to get them really pumped up. But, you know, I, the team didn't really have a whole lot of those. Justin Thomas, of course, uh, has that kind of fire and energy. I thought Berger would have more of it, but he just didn't play well enough to really get that energy going at all throughout the week. And so uh, they treated this thing like a business trip. And that's essentially what it felt like with, you know, hey, you guys are going to go out there, you're going to play good golf, and uh, we'll celebrate later on. I, I do think that a lot of U.S. teams in the past probably came away from the Ryder Cup having had more fun throughout the week where, you know, hey, we're all in the team room, we're hanging out, we're bonding, <laughs> we're having a great time. I don't think that was the case for this team, but they were able to celebrate on Sunday night. And so if that's the ultimate goal is, hey, win, we can celebrate afterwards, uh, they did that well. I want to get back to something you said about the uh, some of the European players, especially the captain's picks. I, I think there's a great analogy, Tom, between the U.S. picks in Paris in 2018 and the European picks this year. Uh, U.S. picks then, of course, were Tiger, Phil, Bryson, and Tony Finau. And I, I remember at the time, there there was a little pushback on Phil, just, ah, oh, Phil doesn't, you know, he hadn't played great in Ryder Cups, his record's not that great, why are we bringing him? But quite frankly, you look at it, and there weren't really choices. I mean, it was sort of clear-cut, like, these are the four guys, these are the four best players, and yeah, we can try to do something, again, outside the box, we can try to think of something else, but they brought the four best players, and yet you always kind of got the sense that the four best players really weren't set up well for that golf course. They weren't really, even though Tiger was coming off a win at the Tour Championship, it just didn't feel right. And so you look at the European picks, and you go, Ian Poulter, Ryder Cup hero, <laughs> has to be on the team. And I still look back on it and I said, look, I didn't criticize the pick. He probably had to be on that team. He's played really well in the Ryder Cup. Padraig, if he lost and didn't have Poulter on that team, yeah. would have been lambasted by everybody. And so... You put Poulter on the team, then Poulter gets there, and he's not really playing well, and he's not a great course fit. Then you start looking at it and say, well, he was a great Ryder Cup player nine years ago. I'm not <laughs> sure he's still a great Ryder Cup player. And so uh, you look at that. You look at, um, you know, Westwood. And, you know, did Westwood deserve a pick? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know that Justin Rose deserved it any more than Westwood. I, but you get Westwood there, and, you know, you're thinking, oh, all right, Westwood, you know, kind of, 
he should be there. And then you look at him playing this golf course and it just, it was too much golf course for him. So even some of the guys that made the team, Matt Fitzpatrick, just not a good course fit for him at all. And so again, I mean, I, I think probably it comes into the matter of, you know, and I've heard some people saying this already that the, there should be some sort of neutral, uh, neutral, um, objective party that sets up these golf courses. I kind of like the fact that the U S can set up a, you know, let's go make it a 9,000 yard <laughs> golf course with huge fairways and let the guys bomb. And then hopefully we get to Rome in a couple of years and the fairways are about this wide Pinched, and yeah. you have to hit it two thirty straight down the fairway. And that's a dog like to hit it one seventy that way with big, thick rough on either side of the fairways and it'll be set up for them. And I, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. There's a huge advantage for the home team. So again, I, you look at the guys that Europe had and none of them were necessarily the wrong players. And I don't know who else would have been better than them, but you kind of got the sense going into it that they weren't quite the right players either, if that makes sense. No, and I completely agree. I think that, like you say, Polter, you know, Travis Fulton asked me a couple of times and other guys asked me that, you know, do you take Ian Poulter? I said, look, if Ian Poulter's got two arms and two legs, he's going to be picked until he can't walk, right? And, yeah. and, and he's kind of earned that. And I think this will be the last... This felt like a favour pick to him. Like, you know, you haven't quite done enough, but you deserve it one more time. Let's see what you do. And you know, he's won his singles match. And I think he can now go out with his head held high and, you know, kind of protect that record a little bit. Because I think any any longer now, those could start going a bit sideways. And then then you you, you had Sergio and Lowry as the other two. But Sergio had to go. Sergio was, was superb. And, and Lowry basically was in the team most of the time, in and out. And, and it was like Westwood said, that it shouldn't have come right down to Wentworth for that selection process. I think... They keep trying to trump each other. I mean, you know, the the U.S. selection was changed so much because of what Billy Horschel did in the FedEx Cup in 2014 and, and, you know, things like that. And, I mean, there was a lot of talk about Billy Horschel getting a pick and it was like, OK, I know he, I know he's won Wentworth the week before when, when the picks were already in, but, you know, he... He hadn't done anything throughout the year. Like he, I, I know he's a great player. I know he's a great match play player, and, I, and I'm a massive Billy Horschel fan. But how do you turn to Jason Kokrak, Scotty Scheffler, Sam Burns, and go? Do you know what? We're taking Billy Horschel because he's he's quite good at match play, and he's gonna, you know, he's just one of BMW PJ Wentworth. Like any of those guys that went over there would compete at Wentworth. That's not that's not a disgrace to Wentworth. It's just that you know PJ Tour players do well when they go over there. Um, so I think that I think the the US team just had this like embarrassment of riches that. There was always going to be this kind of like, well, you, you could take you could take Kevin Nar. I mean, I like Kevin Nar. I think he's elevated his game massively, and I think Kevin Nar in Rome in two years' time would be excellent. You know, I think he's a, he's a great pick for that um, if he's in the same form. But you know, I, I just couldn't believe there would be any reason not to take the guys that they took. So I think that, like you say, both sides were pretty much. I think the only one that was unlucky to miss out in terms of the European side was Justin Rose. Um, yeah. He he found it right at the end, and I think that I kind of think it spoke volumes that he wasn't there as a vice captain and I don't know if that was on his part for the fact that he would feel awkward with the guys that did get picked that or whether he just didn't I don't know if he used it as kind of like inner motivation like if I didn't make the team I don't want to be any part of it and I'll get to the next one you know it's you, you're kind of second guessing how they feel right but he was probably the only one but then you know a couple of guys said on Twitter like how how much of a difference would he have really made, like in that team? Like I know he would he wasn't, have. He wasn't winning ten points. No, exactly that, and and he may have been good for an extra half a point, and and that was you know what him and him and Rory were going to half a point, so he wasn't just going to directly replace Bolter. So it's it's a really tough thing, like you say, to second guess it. But 
I think now, like, I was doing some kind of, like, way too early predictions on the Ryder Cup teams for, for Rome, like you always do. Oh, yeah, I love it. Um, I think there's 10 of the 12 guys uh, for the American side that probably still go. I think that Harris English won't make it, and I don't think Daniel Berg will make it, unless, you know, they, they do what they did this time around. Um, so, and it never seems to work out that way. Like, no, you know, those, I, those 10 I'm, guys won't be there, will I'm they? I'm completely so. with you on that, too. Yeah. And, and by the way... Uh, first of all, it inver- inadvertently said that Lee Westwood was a captain's pick, but the point remains that yeah, the horse, yeah. Yeah. he was a little overmatched for that golf course, uh, even though he had qualified for the team. Uh, secondly, and I was doing post-game shows for uh, the radio broadcast each day, and so we were on air as we were sort of predicting what the next morning's uh, pairings would be, and then you know they'd come out and we'd sort of analyze them afterwards. And the one point we kept making was that the U.S. was trying to find guys that they could sit, and they were like, man, how <laughs> yeah. do we sit? These four guys are all playing well. And meanwhile, Europe's trying to find uh, eight guys they can play. Europe's like, well, I guess we could put this guy in and see if that works. And uh, that just turned out to be the difference. I mean, we were sort of joking about it, and I guess, you know, uh, I'm sure the European audience wouldn't think it was very funny, but we were joking about the fact that, God, you know, he's sitting Justin Thomas. He's sitting Scotty Scheffler in a session where Padraig's looking over there going, I'll take him. Yeah. <laughs> that, that guy's playing better than anyone else on my team, maybe other than Rom and Hovland. So yeah. I, I'd gladly take him over here if you're not going to use him. So uh, as far as uh, the next Ryder Cup, I love the the look ahead. I, I talked about uh, the potential 2023 rosters with Justin Ray, uh, the stats maven from 21st group on our podcast with the Action Network and – he makes a great point, and he's probably right. He said, "Look, we always think we're gonna, we know what's gonna happen two years in advance." And I was trying, I made the exact same point as you. I said, "Take out English and Berger, put Zalatoris and Burns on that team, and you've got your Ryder Cup team for Rome in two years." And Justin said, "Look, two years is a long time. Two years ago, absolutely zero people would have predicted that Colin Morikawa would be on the Ryder Cup team, let alone a two-time major champion." beforehand so a lot of things can happen and he was trying to say it might only be six or seven players from the u.s who are on this next team i i find that hard to believe then again a few years ago you never would have looked at patrick reed and said yeah i don't think he's going to be on the Ryder cup team in 2021 he said you know if we're making a list he might be the first one on the list yeah that's a lock to be on the team going back three years so i do think that uh, there's probably going to be more change than we think, but I, you know, if I had to make a prediction right now, I'm kind of with you that uh, take those top ten, replace English and Berger with Zalatoris and uh, and Burns, and you, you've got a pretty strong roster right there. As far as the European side, I think there's going to be a decent amount of turnover. The problem is I just don't know who's replacing some of these guys, and you know, uh, we look at the young talent in Europe right now, and you know whether it's a Rasmus Hoygaard or uh, Sam Horsfield or, I, I don't know, Alex Fitzpatrick even, who uh, Justin brought up, Guido Migliazzi. Uh, you know, there are all these guys there. I don't know that any one of them individually is going to be better than anyone who's replacing players on the U.S. side. And so uh, it just goes to show you, I think this thing's cyclical. For a long time, Europe kept bringing in, you know, more and more young players who would get into this thing and start playing well. And the U.S. just didn't really have those guys. Uh, you know, go back 15 years, and Vaughn Taylor and Brett Wetterick and <laughs> J.J. Henry were all on the U.S. Ryder Cup team. I mean, those guys, uh, if they were playing to the same level, uh, 
now as they were playing back then, they wouldn't be in the top 50. Brett Wetterick had one good month in Texas back in 2006 and got onto the Ryder Cup team. Now you better play really well for a year and a half if you want to get onto the Ryder Cup team. And so it's become much harder and much more competitive on the U.S. side. And I just don't know who's replacing those guys on the European side. They're going to scare them. Yeah, it's, it's a great point you make about those U.S. sides because you always you always kind of signify U.S. with dominance and they're always favourites and they're always going to go ahead. The reason they're favourites is because they've always had Tiger Woods, they've always had Phil Mickelson, they've always had guys like DJ and that coming through. But they've that bottom of the order has always been kind of weak. And, you know, I think back to, like, you know, stars of, like, Ryder Cups in the past for the U.S. I mean, like, Boo Weekly had a great week and Jeff Overton. It's like, these guys weren't superstars. These were just guys, right? They were just... Yep people in the team and that is exactly what europe have got now i mean i my way to early look at europe was ram rory hovland hatton fleetwood lowry sergio remaining which you know is probably tough but it could be no that's okay then you've got justin rose back in the picture and then i've gone with sam horsfield who you mentioned guido migliozzi and then i've gone with casey and fitzpatrick and i think with casey maybe one too far um but he's, he's just had this ridiculous run of form that i think he'd just get himself in there if he carries it on and Fitzpatrick, I think, has just got to... We've got to see what he's going to do on a European course because he's played two now. He's played a Hazel team. He's played in Whistling Straits. Neither great for him. I mean, we talk about bad pairings. Him and Westwood was a, was a horrendous pairing. I mean, mm-hmm. the only real reason they got put together, I think, was because of the Billy Foster connection. Well, let's not start making pairings because of a previous caddy experience. And you've got a guy that was the most aggressive putter on the European tour side versus the most tentative putter in Lee Westwood. So it was... It was, you know, he was rounding five foot past, and Lee Westwood was crapping his pants. So it was, it was, it was a horrible sight to see, really. But then, the, you know, I think it was uh, Ollie Wilson just sort of coming to say, "No, Hogard twins in my team." And I was like, "Look," I said, "Rasmus Hogard has won three times in a in a short, you know, short span, and he looks great." I said, "But the European Tour was such a strange schedule last year. It was all of these resort courses, all over hotels where they made great for amateurs, where they can go and shoot twenty under par." I said that was right in his wheelhouse. There was no fans there, nothing, no pressure. Um, okay, he's gone and won in Cran-Sassier as well, which was great, but Bert Wiesberger should have won that. He he kind of lost that on the last hole. His brother Nikolai, of course, has won since as well. but And he won on the on the future Ryder Cup course. But, you know, to, for them to get into, to guarantee them being on that team and me to make way early predictions, you'd have, you, he would have, Rasmus had to win another one and guaranteed. Nikolai would probably have to win two. Like, do I see Rasmus being a, Five, four or five time winner on European Tour before 2023 it's tough so then you start going down so who, who are the guys that you see making a step up onto like the PGA Tour and Sam Horsfield is the first one that comes to mind um, mm-hmm. but he's so volatile right I think he'd be a brilliant match play player I think that he's helped you know he's been around Ian Poulter for long enough to, to kind of get buy into that um, and Guido Migliozzi was excellent you know during that little run in the summer but again like you said about Brett Witterich like he, he had a month like he had a month two months and it's like most of it's on European tour level so you have to kind of look at guys that have been there done it and that's the problem with Europe is we have come to the end like there is you know Sergio is is clawing on for dear life then you've got Poulter is probably out Westwood's like well he was likely to be captain but he's kind of you know poo-pooed that idea but whereas you look at the US side, USA side and if they take I mean, they could be stronger next year. I mean, you mentioned Jason Coker, you mentioned Will Zalatoris, who is, you know, a big fan of. Sam Burns is probably going to get himself in there. And all of a sudden, you're looking... And this is not allowing for Cameron Champ and Matthew Wolf taking steps forward again. I mean, sure, Matthew Wolf could be anything in two years' time. I mean, he's he's a great player, but he's had a lot of problems. Cameron Champ, 
okay hit or miss depends on golf course i think but you know there's there's so much talent on the pga so i mean we, talk, we don't even talk about guys like max homer i mean if europe had a guy like max homer all of a sudden we'd be pretty happy and it really does. I mean, there was a, the the big debate over Alan Shipnuck in his article a couple of years ago before Paris, where he said there's going to be this massive dominance after Hazelton, and I and I was one of them. I was like, you know, what are you talking about? It's not worked that way. But he had a point. Like, there was no avenue for European success coming up. Like, it, it very much looked like what was going to happen when these greats do have to retire from a game. Yeah, and I don't know that there's anything wrong with the system. I just. I'm looking, I'm looking up and down the world ranking. I'm trying to find the guys who's the next great European player. And I see good European players. I don't see great European players. I don't I don't even see a Scotty Scheffler from no. the European side. And I'm trying to look at it not as an American, but at, objectively as a journalist, you're trying to identify talent. Quite honestly, Tom, I, I think the international team for the President's Cup, and I know that's blasphemy to even <laughs> like compare the two, but they have way more up-and-coming stars at their disposal than the European Ryder Cup team. I mean, you look at Joaquin Neiman, you look at Garrick Higo, you look at Mito Pereira. I'm, I'm probably missed a whole bunch. Takumi Kanaya is going to be a really good player. You look at all these good, like, young 20-something players that potentially can knock out the Jason Days and Adam Scotts and at some point Louis Oosthuizen's uh, guys that have been on the President's Cup for close to two decades now. And that next generation for that team I think it's going to be very, very talented, and I think they can uh, at some point give the Americans a run, especially if the Americans seem to not care nearly as much about the President's Cup than they do about the Ryder Cup. But I just don't see that talent level from the 20-somethings in Europe. And I'd like to be wrong, and I'd like to think that, you know, two years from now we can sit here and look at an Audrey Arnas from Spain and say, like, wow, all of a sudden he turned into a top-20 player, and that guy's going to go out and crush it in the Ryder Cup. But Based on what we've seen so far, I, I, I'd love to identify some of those talents, but you and I have gone over the same names. You know, We've been talking about this for five minutes now, and I haven't heard a name yet where I go, oh, yeah, he's going to scare the Americans two years from now. I just I don't know who's out there to do it, other than you put John Rahm in every single match playing <laughs> yeah. four ball by himself <laughs> and just go out there and just crush everybody. But they, it's funny because you say that, right? And, and every team that everyone kind of came counted back to me um, was like, well, what if Molinari and Kaima find form? And it's like, that's not a good sign. Like, we should no. not be expecting them to find form. Like, Molinari is never going to recapture the form that he had going into Paris. And that's not that's not a criticism of Molinari. He will never be able to reach that level again. It was inhumane what he was doing there. Martin Keimer has, has had his day. Like, I, I really like Martin Keimer. I love what he did at Medina when he was out of form, etc. But you cannot rely on those. And then the names that were getting banded out were like Thomas Dietrich. And I'm like, well, okay, well... You know, all the criticism, I mean, Thomas Dietrich is basically to the European tour what Tony Finau had been to the PGA Tour, except Tony Finau was very, very consistent and looked like he could win multiple times, whereas Thomas Dietrich's had maybe two or three real good looks at it. I mean, he's had a lot of second-place finishes, but Dietrich hasn't won. At least Finau had that win in Puerto Rico. Dietrich hasn't even had that. So it's like, what, you know, I can't be pinning my hopes on them. And I love the fact that you brought up the President's Cup thing because I put uh, a poll out earlier in the week and I said... You take the European Ryder Cup team from Whiston Strait versus this potential President's Cup team, and who wins? And I said Hideki Matsuyama, Louis Ustase, and Cameron Smith, Joaquin Neiman, Adam Scott, and Mark Leishman, Sung J M, Abraham Anser, Corey Connors, Bezuiden out, Higo Van Royen. And that was leaving off Cameron. Team. Yeah, that was leaving off Cameron Davis, Jason Day, Lucas Herbert, Minwoo Lee, 
uh, Carlos Ortiz, Mito Pereira, and the guys that you mentioned as well in Takumi Kanaya is, is upcoming. The poll ended up 63% in internationals' favour, and I think there was a little bit of recency bias there, but... Sure. It, you know, it's frightening. Like, you know, we saw the guys that that put up a fight at the President's Cup last time out in the sense of Abraham Anser and, 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 and you know, Cameron Smith had a go and Hideki's just brilliant on his day and Ustazen's basically played to an elite level all season. Um, and, yeah, like you say, you've got Adam Scott and Mark Leishman in there, a bit of an old guard and could be knocked out, so could Jason Day. But then you just replace them straight away. You've got Mimu Lee, Mito Pereira, you know, Takumi Kanaya coming in. And the argument is Europe don't have that. I mean, Cameron Davis is, is would probably be an excellent match play player. You know, it's, it's really hard to to envisage yeah. it. So coming back to earlier what you said about the the courses and being negated in terms of having a neutral field, I really hate that idea for Europe because I think their idea is like, okay, well, then the Americans can't have these really long setups with no rough. But if it's neutral and they try and find a balance between the two teams... Europe have got no chance because America will just win on talent out. You know, we need that home field advantage to have a chance. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree with that, which is why I love the fact that, okay, so every four years, the U.S. gets to set up a course where they should be able to just bash it all over the place and beat the Europeans. But at least the Europeans have a chance every four years of, all right, well, now we get to do the same thing. We get to set it up for for our players. If you set it up on a neutral golf course that – doesn't really suit either team any better. The American team's better right now. And again, it's cyclical. I mean, I don't know that two years from now we're going to sit here and say, boy, all these young European players, they're really good. But maybe eight years from now we do that. And so, I, I mean, I remember, you know, going back to that 06 team, which I always use as sort of the low watermark for the, the American side. <laughs> uh, you know, we mentioned, uh, I, I always feel bad. I always beat on Brett Wetterick, who, yeah, he was a decent player for yeah. what he was. And, Hey, the guy made a Ryder Cup team. Good for him. But uh, the fact that, you know, Wetterick, Vaughn Taylor, uh, J.J. Henry, I, I remember speaking with Charles Howell about it at that point. And Charles Howell didn't even make that. I don't think he was on that team. Maybe he was. But um, and, and I said, you know, what's wrong with, like, the American talent? Why are there no good young American players? And he looked at me and just said, just wait. He's like, it's all cyclical. Maybe it's not happening right this very second, but it will happen at some point. And. It's exactly what we're seeing right now is a ton of really good 20 something American players. And who knows, like I said, eight years from now, Europe could have a ton of really good talent. And then we look at America and we say, boy, these guys coming up, uh, the 20 to 25 year olds are good, but there's no one that's going to be great. And all of a sudden European Europe has the advantage again. And you look at them and say, well, they're going to win a whole bunch of Ryder cups and the U S is going to struggle because Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas and Xander Shoffley and Patrick Cantley and all these guys are 38 years old and they're, you know, not really uh, in their prime anymore. And so, again, it's it's cyclical, but I do think the tables have turned very much in the U.S. side. And I think the the biggest concern for me as well is that when they talk about the, the young Europeans coming through, I mean, we look at our team and it, it was John Rahm is, you know, he's not young, but he's on the younger side. And Victor Hovland is our youngest bright star. They're so suited to the American game because that's all they've done. Like they've yep. grown up in Arizona and Oklahoma, and that's pretty much going to be the same for most of the Europeans going forward. And I know that the Luke Donalds and the Paul Caseys and the you know they did it, but there was enough of the teams that didn't go. Rory didn't go. Justin Rose didn't go. Like I think the the, the college system's so good for for these Europeans now. They go over there and they they just become 
US players, like in you know, with European nationalities and is John Rahm and Victor Hovland going to enjoy a really tight golf course with with high rough, you know? And if that's the case, you're you're taking you're taking away from your best players to try and negate negate the other players on the other side. It really does seem pretty tough. I mean, it frightens me that our best players are guys that would prefer to be at Whistling Straits than they would at at Rome. So it's I don't know. I mean, I mean, they'd have to really change that Rome setup as well because that was pretty much suited to to the Bombers in in the European Tour in the Italian Open. So. It's really tough to see. I just, I, I guess I'm pessimistic by nature. I'm English, like, you know, you can't help that. But I, I just do wonder where the next chance is over the next decade, where it's really going to feel good about it. I will say, Tom, we should be expecting some mean tweets because we've gone over all these young <laughs> players from Europe and we've somehow missed Robert McIntyre and have, yeah. haven't mentioned him at all. And so, like, somebody's going to tweet us at us at some point and go, like, well, that like the next generation of young, good European <laughs> players, like he's at the head of it and you guys completely passed over him. So I, I will give you that. I think he's going to be a very, very good player. And, and again, he's he's one of these guys that didn't come over to America yeah. at some point. I think he's going to play the PGA Tour, but um, he, he's a guy that's sort of, you know, born and bred on those link style courses and should be a guy. I, I would expect him on the team in Rome and, and many years beyond that as well. I mean, yeah, it's quite funny because, I mean, I, I kind of, dig out Bob McIntyre quite a lot in the sense that I think I think people have gone way over the top in the praise for him and I think the trouble is and that is not his fault that is because we're so desperate for the next star coming through like yes. as soon as he came mm-hmm. second to Paul Casey in uh, Abu Dhabi or Qatar I can't remember it was now it was like right he's definitely on the Ryder Cup team and he's gonna win the Open Championship and I was like whoa pump the brakes like he won in Cyprus last year in a showdown event which wasn't even a proper you know fully fledged event um, you know, he's had a couple of seconds here and there, but he was, you could see by the end of the season where he was kind of, he was trying to push for that Ryder Cup team, but then he was chasing his card via the Corn Ferry finals. And you think, okay, that that's the way he's got to go, right? That is what he wants to do. Um, that's what every good young player needs to do is get to the PGA Tour. Um, and the Europeans don't ever really play the Ryder Cup on Lynx golf courses. So even if he is good at that, then, you know, it's not happening. It's still going to be Parkland golf courses. So, um, once he's been in America for the next couple of years, which is obviously is his aim, and he gets a few invites, you just worry about whether that's a benefit as well. And then people go, okay, we don't want to take McIntyre. What about Callum Hill? And I'm like, right, we're just getting to a point where we're just saying names for yes. for the sake of it. And I'm just like, I legitimately can't see a player coming through. And, and it does change, right? I mean, we're talking now, Jason, and in a year's time, there'll be a player that we didn't even really know anything about. I mean, I'm quite willing to accept that I didn't really know anything about Garrett Higo and Wilco Nineaver until much way through last year. Um, and, you know, again, they're South Africans, so they're not playing for Europe. So it's... It, these guys come from all different, you know, nooks and crannies, and you can find them, but you can't rely on just someone coming out of the blue. Like, you can see a very clear pipeline of, of American players coming through. I mean, we've got... Will Zalasaurus, who hasn't even scratched the surface of his potential. Like, sure. you, you, you know, even guys that, I mean, I, I looked at John Augenstein this week as a, as a player that's going to take a leap on the PJ Tour. Like, it's probably not going to happen in the time for the next Ryder Cup, but he's got another 20 years of professional golf, and, and he already looks like he could be more talented than the guys coming from the European Tour. So it's like, what what do you do? And he's not even going to be thought of. He's not going to be a name that's going to be even anywhere near those sides. Davis Riley, people like that. They're, just, they're not guys that are going to be on the Ryder Cup team, and yet they're probably people that will go, quick, we'll have your nationality. I mean, we'll take Rory Sabatini at this point. Like It's just, <laughs> it's so tough to, to see. And I, and I don't want the whole podcast to be miserable about European side. I just think... <laughs> 
I think it's it's almost like a, a pointer to you know how successful. I think we've kind of regressed to the mean now because I think when you look at what happened at Medina, right, and it's not called Miracle at Medina for no reason, and we're going slightly, I'm going to go slightly off topic here, but you guys were 10-6 up, and that took a miracle to even get its 10-6 going into the singles. And just like you were this past Sunday, you were favoured in 11-12 this week. You were probably favoured in, I don't know, 8 maybe then. At um, least, yeah. Yeah, so you should have won that Ryder Cup. Like, there, there is just no two ways about it. And there is there was two significant factors. You had, I think it was the first, third and fifth best player in the world we had at the time. I think in kind of Rory Rose and, and, and Donald was up there, I think, and Westwood as well. So they were they were really strong players at the time. We didn't have that this time around. You had this kind of massive thing about Othabal and, and Ballesteros there. And there was a, a lot of remembrance of Sevi. And I think that plays a big part. Like, you can't... You know, in terms of data, you can't go, okay, well, we gained X amount of strokes because we were in memory of Seve, right? But it definitely doesn't have a factor, whereas it wasn't really anything to play for. So I I do think, and we all know, look, the U.S. team has been the favorite on paper and the favorite in the betting markets for years and years and years. And a lot of times that doesn't come to fruition. But how did Europe counter that? And, you know, they they countered it by, like I mentioned earlier, being more prepared, uh, being more planned out beforehand, using the analytics to their favor, which the U.S. team I don't think really used very much until this year. Well, if the U.S. now is going to do all of those things that Europe has been doing for years and as <laughs> the better players, well, where is Europe getting that advantage? And so the only place I see it really is, okay, well, when we go back to Europe, we can set up a golf course that Matt Fitzpatrick has a chance of beating uh, Patrick Cantley on a Sunday afternoon or Bryson DeChambeau on a Sunday afternoon because it's set up for a player of his skill set. Whereas, again, everything else, I, I feel like the Americans have now leveled the playing field as far as intangibles. So for 20 years, the Europeans had intangibles on their side. Like if you were doing a tail of the tape and you said, OK, well, driving distance, check off the Americans and, you know, strokes gained approach shots. Oh, it's probably Americans, too. And putting, well, maybe the Europeans have like a slight advantage. And then, all right, intangibles, like five check marks for the European squad on the intangibles column because <laughs> uh, they just had everything in their favor, whether it's camaraderie, motivation, desire, playing the underdog role. I mean, it was like all in their favor. Well, if you level that out and say, well, now the intangibles uh, basically are even. If the Americans are going to do everything the Europeans have done for years and years to help beat them, then it really just comes down to who's going to play better. And more often than not, at least with these squads, and again, it can change a whole lot in the next two years, but with these players on these squads, the way they're being managed and the way they're being handled, and oh, by the way, and I'll get into this in a second, the captains do matter a whole lot, yeah. but the way they're doing this right now, I I don't know where Europe gains that advantage. I, I just don't know how they get it back to, you know, hey, we've got a little something in our favor that the Americans don't know. We've got a little secret formula that they haven't quite figured out yet. Because I think they've kind of figured out everything that Europe was doing. McGinley, we talked about McGinley being a great captain before. Uh, McGinley still had things on Sunday evening in the press conference. We're asking about all these secrets. He's like, yeah, I can't really divulge them because they're still secrets. Yeah. And I, I think the U.S. team's kind of, all right, we've kind of infiltrated. Yeah, we figured, out. figured out those <laughs> yeah. secrets. Uh, I, I will say, by the way, I, I still have a lot of people on Twitter saying, come on, captain, like, Steve, I could have captained that U.S. team. Steve Stricker essentially just like, hey, go play together. You guys are really good and go beat those guys. You know what? That's exactly what Tom Watson said back yeah. in Glen Eagles 14. Yeah. 
said, you guys are better than those guys. Why don't you go beat them? Yeah. Well, that didn't really work. And so as a captain, you've got to get the guys to play for you. I thought as a soft-spoken, uh, business-like person and player himself, Steve Stricker essentially let the U.S. team take on his persona. And I thought that was so important that he didn't try to he didn't try to mold him into anything they weren't. He basically said, look, I like to just go out and play golf. I don't need rah-rah speeches. I don't need videos to get me fired up. That's not to criticize anything Podrick did. I know no. he showed them yeah, a yeah. big video about, you know, did the whole 164 thing. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And, you know, if, if they won, we're going to be like, wow, that video was amazing. <laughs> yeah. He really got him fired up. And why didn't Stricker do that? He didn't get his guys fired up enough. But I, I thought he treated them the way he would have wanted to be treated as a Ryder Cup player when he was playing in these. And I just think that really works so well. And so I, was Steve Stricker 10 points better than Padraig Harrington as a captain? No, absolutely not. But I don't know how you how you put a number next to it. But I do think he, he probably out-captained him a little bit. And I, I, I think that goes a long way. And I think, you know, again, it's about setting the tone. Hey, let's go on a trip two weeks beforehand. You learn your sight lines. Learn how the putts are rolling. Get a little team bonding. Figure out who wants to play with who and what's going to work out. And then, you know, I'm just going to I'm going to treat you like adults, treat like professionals, treat you like I would want to be treated if I was one of you playing on the team. And I just think all that worked really, really well. It was really smart. I I wonder as well whether there was a slight bit of a a lack of intimidation. Yeah, if you play for a Tiger Woods or a Phil Mickelson and you start letting them down, then I think you start to panic because of their kind of reputations, what they've done in years past. You know, Tom Watson had been over in Europe and won Open Championships and competed at an late age and played well in Ryder Cups. And you look at those guys and you think, oh, you know, there's a big stardom about them, even though the players probably didn't know who they were. Whereas, you know, Steve Stricker, not to to discredit his career, has been fantastic, but he's not a major champion. He's not not had a great success in the Ryder Cup. They've just looked at him and gone, look, you know, we had you at the President's Cup two years prior. Um, You did a great job for us there. you know, you've been really calm and collected. Like, that's perfect. Like, just let Brooks go and do what he wants to do. Let Bryson go and do what he wants to do. That works out well, keeping them separate, whatever. Um, I don't really buy into that kind of feud, but... Right, right. It's... You had guys like... So you had... You talked about no, people I think, being labor. By, by the way, yeah. Tom, I, I think that's so smart. And I, I think it's the same analogy you could make between Nick Faldo and Paul McGinley. Yeah. Where nick faldo it's like oh boy it's nick faldo like yeah. it's big bad nick who's in the room and yeah i, I want to lose for this guy he won six majors like i'm i'm a little you know as opposed to mcginley it's like ah he's he's kind of one of us yeah, like, he's I, a guy. You know, yeah. he's a, a player's coach so to speak we see players coaches in in other sports and uh you know i think the guys that have done it best in the Ryder cup have been players coaches and, and i think as well i spoke to wally wilson for the podcast and he was obviously part of that 08 Ryder cup and and he was playing with uh, Henry Stenson against Phil Mixon and, and Anthony Kim, and they come, they rallied back on the back nine to, to get a half a point. And um, Holly Wilson felt for sure that he was going to go out in the afternoon. And he got dragged, and Stenson got put with I can't remember who else it was, but they lost their match. And I said to I said to Holly Wilson because he he kind of he lost to Boo Weekly on that final day, but Boo Weekly shot the best out of anybody on the whole golf course. I think he shot seven under, and Holly Wilson was second in three under, and it was like he couldn't have done anything that day. So. I looked back and I said to Ollie Wilson, I said, like, do you think you were mistreated or miscaptained? And he said, well, I've never really been asked that kind of question before. And I said, well, I just, I'm just looking purely at, at the data. Like, you were in hot form coming in. Like, you'd got that half point against two of the best players on their team, a really good partnership. Um, 
why didn't you go back out? And he said, well, I thought I was. Um, and I think you're right. He said he felt that going into that team, that Nick Faldo did not actually want him on the team. He felt like he had to take him or he got himself in. I can't remember which way it was now. And he said mm-hmm. he, did, he felt like Nick Faldo did not respect him. He said because he hadn't won on European tour and Nick Faldo won six majors, he had no respect for him whatsoever. And that must be so horrible as a player going out going, well, he's already marked me down as a failure and, and, and circled me as something else. Whereas... You know, Steve Stricker had no ego. Like he's never been a guy that's ever been on ego. I mean, yes, he's he's obviously been bullish and confident enough to win the golf tournaments he has. But you know, this guy is a guy that is pretty modest by you know living, and you wouldn't know he was a multi-millionaire and, and a guy that's won the X amount of titles he's won on the PGA Tour and had the career that he's had. But and I think it's going to be the same with Zach Johnson. Like this guy's won the Open and the Masters, but he's had a pretty you know aside from those, he, he's been pretty modest and and he's quite you know he's not done a whole lot in the Ryder Cup if. if much at all um so i think you've got a nice little pipeline of of Ryder cup captains and then you've got i'm guessing you know phil in new york at beth page and it then it starts to get a bit difficult again maybe but i just think the talent will win over but i i agree with you that it's probably zach i mean the writing's on the wall that he would be the next one and we've always thought phil would be the captain at beth page at some point on that big group text that all these guys have, yeah. Tiger's just going to write, I got next. Yeah. And everyone's going to go, yeah. all right, cool. Yeah. Like, thumbs up emoji, <laughs> you got it, Tiger, whatever you want to do. Yeah. And so I just don't know when that point's going to come. I, I've heard rumors that prior to all this stuff happening, like prior to the accident, prior to winning the 19 Masters, that Tiger had pegged 2023 in Rome as his year to be the captain. Now, right. who knows? I'm sure even Tiger himself doesn't know right now if that's something he wants to do or can do in two years does he want to try to continue playing can he even move around enough there's so many questions swirling around i and i've always thought that tiger might kind of be okay with hey i want to like look at the analytics i want to make the pairings i want to hang out in the team room i want to be around the guys and i don't want to have to do all the crap that goes around it for two years like you know traveling to the site and giving you know speeches and doing interviews and all that kind of stuff. I, I think he'd rather just sit in the background. And I also wouldn't be surprised if you know. And we, we see this in national teams. You know, I'm, I'm a big soccer slash football yeah. guy. And you know, we see coaches who aren't necessarily just well. You're the coach for the World Cup, and then the World Cup ends. You yeah. get another coach. Yeah, yeah. It's no, you're the coach. Like that's that's what you do. And I, I wouldn't be surprised, Tom, if. Phil Mickelson takes over as captain in 2025 and then goes again in 27 and again in 29 and again yeah. in 31. Yeah. And if Tiger's okay with, and he's the only one that would really kind of push him out. If Tiger's like, man, I'm totally cool with Phil doing all the stuff in front of the cameras and the microphones. And I can just sit back here in the team room and right. hand him the pairings that I want to, I want to yeah. have out there. And Phil does all the dirty work in, in front of the public let him do it if that's the case i could see phil doing this three four five six times that wouldn't surprise me as far as europe i i don't know what do you think and i i was kind of thinking henrik stenson uh luke donald's name's been brought up so uh, i, I kind of saw it as westwood. yeah i kind of saw it as westwood next polter for for new york against mickelson and i think gmac's gonna get ireland i guess but then like you say you've then got donald and stenson when are they gonna do it you think but yeah. after that, what you know, kind of what happens? You know, you're starting to talk about Sergio, I guess, will be the next man after that, and Stenson is Rose, I guess. Like, yeah, it, it, you know, it will just kind of figure itself out. But it's... at some point, there's going to be too many guys that somebody's going to get left behind. Yeah, like you can't give every if you give everyone a chance, and there have been you know nine guys in this generation that have been on 
multiple Ryder Cup teams. Well, you're talking about the next 18 years, and yeah. by then John Rahm's going to be a captain. I mean, you know, it's I don't know how you squeeze everybody in, give them all a chance. I, th- I think there's there's been a couple of guys that have been. Is it Sandy Lyle? I think you know hasn't been hasn't been the captain, and a guy I can't remember who it was for the American side that people have been pretty upset that hasn't been the Larry captain. Nelson. Yeah, Larry yeah, Nelson. Yeah, Larry Nelson. Right. Nelson's so Fred Couples too. Yeah, and Fred Couples, and you're like, how do those guys not become captains? And it's because there's too many options. There's just too many guys that have. I mean, yeah, Davis Love had two goes at it, so you know maybe that's a. I, was like, I don't know. It's it's so tough, and and like you say, I think, but you know, I say especially in soccer, I say you know when Barcelona was so good for a long period of time, everyone was like, oh, you know, Pep Guardiola is the best coach in the world, and I was like, I could probably manage Barcelona because Messi was so good. But it's exactly what you're saying there about the captains. Like a good team can't can't come together unless they're captain probably. Like. You know, and and like you always see, it, I guess, with the the USA basketball teams, that they they end up losing the most ridiculous games because everyone on the team wants to be the superstar. Like everyone yes. wants to be MJ at the time, and you know, no one, you know, Charles Barkley didn't even make the team because as uh, Isaiah Thomas, sorry, didn't make the team because MJ didn't want him there. And it's like there's all those politics, and it'll be the same for the Ryder Cup. I mean, there's basically talk that the reason Patrick Reed wasn't there is because. Uh, Jordan and Justin didn't want him on the team um, whether that's true or not I mean he, he was pretty ill and not in the best of form anyway so I think that's a contributing mm-hmm. factor but mm-hmm. you know th- there's probably a certain element of that politics in there um, but I think that considering all the question marks about the USA team and their attitudes and their approaches to the game etc I felt like yes okay they didn't have this massive camaraderie but in the end they just came together and did exactly what they needed to do put it to one side Again, I think the Brooks and Bryson thing, the hug was just a kind of stage thing, just a kind of, I don't think there's really a feud there, but, you know, no. you look at, um, like, Harris English and Tony Finau and guys out there, they're just so laid back, man. Like, him and uh, Dustin, like, they're meant to be, like, the big leader of the team, five points. He's just like, yeah, whatever, like, little fist pump, like... Why are they questioning whether he can drink or not? Of course he can drink. We know what DJ's like. Um, DJ's yeah, whatever, until we get to the post-round press conference on Sunday. And then DJ is in the best DJ that we ever (laughs) see, which is just uh, full blast. I I love that. By the way, one of my favorite things in golf is that post-Ryder Cup press conference, Yeah, with the losing team, too, in Europe was fantastic in defeat. I mean, they went back and forth between cries of laughter and cries of... Uh, of pity and being emotional afterwards, but uh, the U.S. in fine form after the victory. And th- those are so much fun uh, after those wins when the guys are uh, guys who finished earlier a little liquored up yeah. and we all know it. And they want to uh, they want to start talking a little bit. Those those are so much fun. So so cool to watch. Yeah, I mean it was great. Look, I, I think that as a as a golf fan, I think it, although it didn't have the 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 magic that the Ryder Cup has going into Sunday, I think that. I mean, even people were trying to talk about this miracle Medina comeback, and that just wasn't going to happen. But like, as a Cole fan, I think it was just quite exciting to actually see the team that should have won actually play to their full potential. Like, I think that there's an element of that. I think that it was really disappointing from a European point of view that we didn't put up a fight whatsoever, really. Um, John Rahm put the team on his back. And, and before we sort of end this, Jason, I, I wonder what your thoughts are. Um, and, and this is kind of changing the subject a little bit again. Do you think that that Rory, because he went out first, and everyone they asked Podrick Harrington, like, did you put him out first because he's the leader? And he's like, he wanted to go first. Like, there was no... Yeah. He told him he was going first. And I think Rory mm-hmm. loved putting Team Europe on his back. Although it wasn't always him that delivered the points, he always went out first. He always got all the five matches. Um, I think he played four matches once when he was a rookie, but the rest of the time, all fives. Like, went out with Poulter, got those points in Medina. I just wonder what his... How he felt about John Rahm being that guy this time around. 
Like, I wonder if that was a factor. I don't, I don't know if it was. I mean, I guess you got you would have a better feeling of that. But I think when it come down to he had a chance to kind of go out on Sunday and do it, he did it. I think he loved showing off in a good way. Um, and he didn't get put with Lowry or Hovland like he really wanted to. He got put with Poulter. Mm-hmm. I just wonder if it felt like, OK, well, I'm now having to do all the dirty work and the teamwork, and I'm not viewed as the guy because John Rahm's getting all the plaudits. And I just wonder if that kind of messed with his head a bit. So we were having this debate on a radio show in the days leading up to uh, the opening day of, of the Ryder Cup last week. And I made the point that Justin Thomas was the most important player on the U.S. side and Rory was the most important player on the European side. That didn't mean either one of them is the best player, but no. just he's the guy that's going to rally everyone around him. If if JT and or Rory is playing well, they've got the vibes, they've got their chin up, they're kind of bouncing down the fairway. It gets everyone else sort of doing the same thing they kind of follow these guys are leaders everyone else kind of follows what they're doing by the same token when either of those guys aren't playing well the heads down they're kind of you know just shuffling their way down the fairway you can look at them i mean both of those players wear their emotions on their sleeves and you can look at them during the course of competition and without knowing anything without seeing scores you go oh jt's playing well today Ooh, rory's not playing well you can just see it on their face you can see the body language and so uh, we had James Corrigan on from the Telegraph, who yeah. uh, we asked that question because Michael had said John Rahm was the, the most important player. Michael Collins, my co-host, and, and and I was saying that Rory was the most important. Not that he's better than John Rahm. John Rahm's far and away the best player in the world. Yeah. But I just thought Rory was the most important player to that team. And Corrigan made a great point because he said, you know, I, I think Rahm's the most important player, but I think Rory loves that in that it alleviates a lot of the pressure on him to be that guy. And so this was on Wednesday or Thursday leading into it. And we thought, okay, well, maybe that is a good thing for Rory. And maybe he doesn't need to be the leader. But as we saw, I don't know, maybe he feels like he needs to be the alpha dog. And he needs to go out there. And, and, you know, he might have played better if he was in the first match off. Not that it should have mattered whatsoever. But if he went off first instead of Rob. And he could kind of go out there and strut and get a point on the board early. I I don't know. It, it's very strange. Uh, to me, it felt very much like everything we've seen from Rory McIlroy over the last couple of years, right. which is he plays tight at the beginning. He can't get going, can't get out of his own way, unforced errors, terrible wedge shots when he's in the middle of the fairway with 112 yards into a green and hits one over the green or misses it. I, and then all of a sudden on Sunday when he's out of it, when he can loosen the shoulders a little bit, when it doesn't matter – Go out and play great golf again. And this is just a recurring theme for him over and over and over. And if we could just get Sunday Rory on a Thursday and Friday, he could get that magic back. But it just doesn't seem to be happening for him. I, I, I've i gone from thinking Rory was, and I still do think he's been one of the greatest players of this generation, but he's also now one of the biggest enigmas. Yeah. And, and I don't think we can, we can even debate that, really. It's just it, you never really know which Rory is going to show up and – um, and, and quite frankly, he's had a, a big struggle putting those four rounds together on a regular basis. And I don't know why I, he's he's got the talent. He's got the talent to be uh, if not. And I, I say this all the time. John Rahm's the best player in the world. Yeah. Everyone else, when you speak about their ceiling is sort of number two. And I do think that along with Patrick Cantley and Xander Shoffley and Justin Thomas and Morikawa, I, I do think that. Rory's got sort of that still, e- yeah. even now at this point in his career, that 
that ceiling to be the second best player in the world. But boy, he hasn't looked like it for a long time. And, and that's the point is like he gets to Augusta every year and it looks like he's going to win it. He's done something before and it's finally going to be Roy's year to win the green jacket. And he plays awful on Thursday pretty average on Friday and then just shoots the lights out over the weekend and finishes in the top 10. And then every year you go, right, well, he's, that's the fifth top 10 he's racked off at Augusta. He's going to win next year. And it's, you have to yes. look at it as, a, as an encompassing thing. And like you say there, I mean, he has had, you know, of the generation, he's been the guy. There's no debate in it. He's, you know, he's won FedEx Cups multiple times. He's won majors. But he won, what, five majors early on in his career or four majors early on in his career. And then done nothing. And he's just a victim of his own success. Like, he's just, he was so good so early. He had great setups when, and I, I kind of think that even when he came out and had the power game of the driver of the tee, I think that was a, a unique skill set. And I think that, that that got him wins just on, on certain golf courses. And now everyone does it, right? So now his, yeah. his kind of standout attribute isn't a standout anymore. He's not even the best driver on his team in, the, on, in Europe. Everyone says he's got the best t-ball when it's on form but it's so often he, he doesn't have a miss either it's two ways you know it can, it can be anything and you know you've got fixer hovland such a good driver of the ball you've got ram such a good driver of the ball maybe not the longest but you know very straight sergio has been absolutely brilliant off the tee like it's not a differential for him anymore so he has to now go and work on his game a different way he has to improve his 150 yards and in he has to start hitting those towering freewards again i mean i think he's improved his around the green game and his putting strike's been decent you know in spurts but it's you know there was so many question marks even going into this like whether the swing changes with pete cowan are working and he just seems to be searching so much and i thought a lot of it was to because of the lockdown and he didn't have the chance to show up in front of fans and he, he buys into mm-hmm. that. And now all of a sudden it looks like it's an actual real struggle. I, I think it's, and look, I, I can't crawl into Rory McIlroy's head. Mm-hmm. None of us can, but based on what we know, okay, we know about Rory. He's got the potential to be one of the best players in the world when he's playing his best. He can play his best and he can play his worst within multiple days yeah. in the same event. And so what can we take from that? What I take is it's not physical. It's yep. not technical. It's mental. Yeah. It's not, hey, let's figure out, you know, how to find that five-yard draw off the tee and aim down the right side of the fairway and belt one 320 all the time. It's how do you figure out how to trick your mind into thinking Thursday is Sunday and you're out of it already? I mean, you know, how do you start quickly if you're Rory McIlroy? To me, uh, there's some sort of mental block going on for him that's not allowing him to play four great rounds in a row. I don't know what it is. Uh, I don't know if it's some sort of complacency. Yeah. I don't know if it's, uh, you know, uh, we always talk about the nappy factor, which yeah. I, I love. You know, become a father and all of a sudden your priorities change and you start winning. We always joke about that narrative. But uh, it, it seems like ever since then, he hasn't played his best golf. Maybe he's got different priorities. Maybe it's different for him than it's been for other players, which has been, hey, you know, I, I'm going to prioritize my golf and my family. Maybe it's just, not that he's, you know, there's anything wrong with family coming yeah, before yeah. career, but I just wonder if it's hit him differently. Maybe he's just made so much money that he's like, what am I even doing? What's my motivation right now? And so I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer any of that. Uh, I'm sure that he's worked with sports psychologists and mental gurus and tried to figure it out. And, and I'm also sure that he hasn't figured it out yet because we haven't seen those results. Yeah. And I think, I think there's so basically every single one of those can be the case. Like, 
he would have seen when he's winning that sort of was it the fifth or fourth or fifth major he won at the 2014 Open at Hoylake, mm-hmm. and he's still chasing Tiger's record at that point. Like that's not out of the question, right? I mean, he's only got 32 now, so he'd have had a you know had a great chance of looking at that earlier on, 25 years of age. That would have met. Slowly, those years start chipping away. He gets a whatever bumper contract he got from Nike for signing up for them. He gets a bumper contract with Taylor Made, and money money is no longer. He doesn't even understand what money means to him anymore because it's too much. Right. He then has a child, and and as we say, normally we go right. They've had a child. Quick, he's going to win next week because he's so excited. Yeah. And he's yeah. just done the opposite, I think. And I think he's so thoughtful. Like he's become the best ambassador for the game of golf, and just lost the not 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 lost the ta- he's never lost the talent, but he's just lost. And I think there is a complacency. Like, does he get up at five o'clock in the morning and go and work out and hit the range like he used to? Maybe not. You know, he's he's probably just chilling out. You know, he'll probably pick up a win or two every year and always be up there with a chance of winning the FedEx Cup. Then, you know, a major is that important to him anymore? I don't know. He's won five of them. Like Mickelson didn't even. That took him ages to win those kind of majors. Like, right. He's right. probably gone. It, yeah. And I think he's probably it, gone to the the barometer of like Tiger's full teams out of reach now. What am I chasing? It's a great point, and you make another great point about the fact that I feel like we're bashing Rory a little bit yeah. here, but I, I do think, and I, I had never thought of golfers in terms of leadership before, maybe in a Ryder Cup setting, but yeah, yeah golfers aren't leaders. They're all individuals. They're playing an individual right. sport, so you don't need someone to step up and speak about issues and things like that. Rory McIlroy over the last couple of years has been an absolute leader. He is by far the best interview in the game. He's my favorite player to speak with. He's... Uh, he's intelligent. He's opinionated. He's well-spoken. He's eloquent. He's fantastic in front of a camera. It almost feels like there's been this inverse proportion of uh, the better he's been on on issues, whether they're golf issues, yeah. social issues, anything else, the worse his game has gotten. And it's just one of the reasons why, of many, where I, I just want him to get back to that level because Rory is a great golfer. Rory is a major champion is so much better for the sport of golf than just Rory as a leader. If he can do both, if he could combine, hey, I'm going to go win one major a year for the next four years, and I'm also going to speak on social issues and speak on what I think golf should do about this and this and this, I just think it would be a tremendous combination. But it, it feels like as he's gotten more opinionated, as he's gotten better on speaking about issues in a better interview, that the game's fallen off. And I, I don't think the two really have anything to do with each other necessarily, but it, it would be great to see him at the top of his game in, in both forms. Yeah, and I think, you know, they look at his uh, like players, guys, and the players associate whatever on the PGA Tour, and he, he, he heads that. He's a part of the chair and on the board there, and that's a, that's another factor. I don't think it's of huge significance, but you, you tend to see, I mean, I suppose Kieran Streelman, and he was going for that, and, and Rory got it, and sometimes they think it's better going to those guys that are not always in the limelight because they can just kind of welcome these guys onto the tour, go to, go to Jay when they need to and stuff like that. But it's, I think it's so tough to do both. And we always talk about Jordan Spieth. It was so good when he came back. And golf's better when Jordan Spieth's at the top of his game. And that's what mm-hmm. we're saying about Rory. But Jordan Spieth's never quite had that kind of... He's always been hyper-focused on when those major championships. He's never been a guy that people go to to get opinions. Like, Rory would be asked about, like, the PGL and things like that. And he has to go and give thoughts on that. Um, yes. If he can just get back to playing golf, which just seems so hard for him right now because of what he's done for himself in this, what he's built for himself over these last couple of years is that he's this go-to guy to talk to on these issues now. It's like, well, okay, I need to go and, I need to go and practice. Like, I need to go and work on it. And like you say, it's not talent. It's not 
Um, I don't think it's a lack of desire, really. Um, I think that there is complacency because I'm just, I'm that good, I will win. As we're talking about it, I, I, I've got a little theory, and my theory is sort of Rory's trying to take the Tiger route, yeah. which was Tiger could, you know, go play at Torrey Pines and a Bay Hill, and, you know, he can go out there and win, but he also, like, we all know Tiger didn't care a whole lot about these other events. It's it's essentially like, hey, let me get four rounds in so I can practice for Augusta or practice yeah. for the U.S. Open or whatever major was coming up. And I think Rory has tried to do that where, all right, I'm going to go into one of these, you know, uh, a Bay Hill or whatever it might be. And, you know, I'll kind of play it 85%. Yeah, I'm trying to win, but also, like, look, I've got enough money. I've got enough trophies. What does winning this event again mean for me? Not a whole lot. And so he's not putting everything into that. Well, unlike Tiger, who really could kind of flip a switch and say, okay, now we're at the major. Now it's time for me to go kick it into high gear and step on the gas pedal. I think Rory's really struggled with, okay, how do I make that transition to not, you know, and again, it's not, I don't want to win. It's not, I'm not going to try to play my best. It's just sort of, I'm gearing up. You know, Tiger always spoke about trying to, peak four times a year yeah and i've spoken with golfers for two decades about how do you do that and, you know my favorite uh response ever was jason day back when he was number one in the world looked at me he's like i don't know he's like, <laughs> i know how to do that like he's like if i'm leading an event two weeks before the masters starts i don't just go wait let me slow down yeah. some bogeys so that, <laughs> yeah. you know i peak in a few weeks instead he's like i, I have no idea but tiger kind of figured that out I feel like Rory is trying to figure that out and it just doesn't fit him. And so instead of, Hey, I'm just going to kind of ease my way in and then play my best at the majors. I feel like Rory almost needs to step on the gas pedal at the other events so that he can keep stepping on the gas pedal at the bigger, bigger ones. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think it also is, it's just like, I I wonder if that, cause he was, he was clearly upset. He was crying. He was visibly upset and really emotional at the Ryder Cup. And I just wonder if that was not just, because they'd lost at the Ryder Cup, because I'm pretty sure he would have expected that, you know, being honest with himself. I think it was like a sudden realisation of, like, I've let the team down because I have been so bad at golf this week. And actually, when I look at myself, okay, I won at Quail Hollow, but other than that, I've been pretty bad at golf for most of the year. And the majors, I'm not... You you look at when the majors he's contended in, he's had top finishes, but he's not really contended at many. I mean, you go back to 2018 Open, maybe, or, you know, Mm -hmm. it's it's not really been contending. So I think there was like a sudden realisation. I'm really keen to see what this does to him now, where he goes into next year and just goes like, right, this is it. Like, he's 32 years of age. I'm in perfect health. I've got a great family. They're all protected now. Corona's in the very view. Like, I can't blame that anymore. Like, there's no travel worries etc let's just go and do what i do best and i'm going to go and win tournaments at a clip that i should be winning them three four times a year um if i go europe pga whatever um and head into augusta and not go i've got to win this it's just this is another week and i can win it because he can win there no problem i used to blame the fact that it was his caddy and and you know and it's nothing to do with that it is purely like he works pretty well with harry diamond i think it works well mm-hmm. having uh, a caddy that that is doesn't challenge him so much is a friend isn't someone that you know i think if you stop putting bones on his back or billy foster was a guy that was touted before he's just gonna it's gonna get in his head ruin his game take away the natural flair so it's not that it's just like you say he gets to thursday and he's he's so tight he feels like he's got 75 comes out on thursday augusta dustin johnson shoots whatever he shoots and it's like okay well i'm seven shots behind already but 
then he gets to Saturday and he makes those five eight birdies on the on the spin uh, on the back nine. And it's like okay, well now Rory's gonna do it, and it's like well no he can't he can't keep mate you can't just birdie every hole. It's impossible. He's the guy that makes his birdies in bunches that people lead them to believe that he can do that out of contention, but it's always just seems to be two or three shots too far. Yeah. Again, I mean, if I was advising Rory, I would say, okay, look, going into 2022, what I want you to do is whatever events you're playing, maybe, maybe it's, I don't even know if he can cut down on events because he's not playing a tremendous amount, but let's treat each one of them. Like it's at least close to a major championship. Let's not like kind of look past. All right. Well, I'm just trying to get going in the year, whether he goes to a Tory Pines or he's played Phoenix a couple times now, or, you know, wherever, wherever he's playing on the West. All right, let's, let's go there. Let's try to win this thing. Like winning matters. Yeah. And, and I think that needs to be drilled into Rory's head again that, you know, Hey, okay. Yes. I know you want to win a green jacket. I know that's sort of the, the culmination of everything. And, you know, that would be sort of the, the peak of uh, your entire career, of course, but that doesn't mean we have to just sort of, you know, say, stay in the, uh, in the slow lane, so to speak, before we move it into the fast lane. Like, let's step on that gas, but let's go, and then we can keep on going at the major. I, and I, I think he needs sort of that tweak of attitude toward the other events because what he's trying to do, again, kind of repeat myself here, but just like Tiger did for years, which was, you know, hey, I'm going to flip the switch. It's major week. Let's go play. Yeah. And Tiger could do it. Brooks Kepka has done it really well. Yeah. Um, Xander Shoffley's done it really well, has, even though he yeah. hasn't won one yet, but he, right. he plays his best golf at major championships. Uh, Rory, I, I think, needs to treat it differently. Uh, Rory, I think, needs to, hey, let, let me go all the time, and then when I get to a major, it's not a different feeling. It, it's not, okay, well, shoot, now I have to play better than I was playing before. And, yeah. and now it's just, I just have to do the same thing I've been doing all year because what I've been doing works. And, and that's the thing, isn't it? Is, um, you know, we'll wrap this up quite quickly, but... You know, DJ spent what 14 consecutive years winning on the PGA Tour, like, and he didn't get those major wins. But every year, he kind of had a chance to to go into one. He should have won one at Whistling Straits. He should have won one at yeah. Oakmont. You know, and then he did get his one at the Masters. And then it looked like he was just going to take a tear off, and and it didn't quite happen for him this year. But he was just winning was a habit for him. Like he knew he was good for a win every year. So if one of those came in the four, you know, four major championships, great. Then you've got the kind of flip side of that, where Rory had all these major wins early on, but wasn't winning multiple times or guaranteed wins every year. He generally did for the early part, but it tailed off later on. And then, you know, Patrick Cantlay, you know, someone that you know you're a massive fan of, hasn't really done it in the major championships yet, but every year he's good for one or two victories. And there is a fine line between trying to peak, which I don't think you can do. I think you just have to you have to have it that week, and you have to have it that week when it's at the right golf course and Augusta never changes, but the other three majors obviously can do or do do. Um, and I think that, I think that's the worst thing for him. Like he's trying to go back to a golf course every year that basically haunts him at the moment. You know, Jordan Spieth never rounds his game off to go back to Augusta. He just knows he can win at Augusta because he'd done it so early on in his career. Right. And, and if Rory had won it back in you know 2011, whatever it was, when he should have won, like, he wouldn't have no fear. He could probably won two or three by now. It's just the fact that every year he goes back and goes, this is where I let myself down every year. Here we go again. I've shot 75 on Thursday, hunched shoulders, and then he has a little lull for that, and then he gets up for the Open Championship. It's not really a great event for him. Then his PJ and US Open could probably work for him if he can go low scoring. So it's tough. I mean, you see so many different approaches to it, and if you were to pick out major winners next week, and you know, or next year, sorry, and I asked you who was the most likely to win Augusta, John Rahm's name will probably come up, you know, and he, and he hasn't really had 
the major contention there yet. He's played well there enough to, to say he can do it. And then you start talking about US Open and Open Championships, and, and you still don't come to Rory as a favourite. And then you get to the PGA, and you're like, well, Rory's still not the favourite. It's still going to be John Rahm. It's still going to be... And that may just help him. That might be the difference, that he can, like you say, take that kind of weight and pressure off. But I sometimes think he needs it. You mentioned DJ, and I, I think this is a hypothetical. I, I don't think we can do this yet, but imagine if we could put DJ's brain inside Rory's head, <laughs> which is essentially, and I, I think DJ gets uh, gets blamed for being like, you know, the does, dumb yeah. guy. And he, he, I, I, I think DJ's fantastic in press conferences. DJ, yeah. I've always said, he, he's looking at us when we're asking him questions the same way, like the... Uh, I don't know, the chimpanzees or the elephants <laughs> in the zoo are like looking back at everyone like, why are you staring at like, what's the big deal? Like, yeah. I'm just sitting here. Why are you guys looking at me? I'm just staring right back at you. He's, right. You know, I was kind of like, dude, so I play golf and I'm pretty good. Who cares? Yeah. And I've had great conversations with DJ. Uh, and when you get talking about anything besides golf, he's fantastic. When yeah. you talk to him about golf, it's just like, eh, yeah, golf's fine. You know, I'll tell you about it, but he just doesn't have that much to say. But if you put DJ's mind into Rory's head, which is just forget about everything. Like who cares? Like you lost a masters 10 years ago that you probably should have won. And you know, you haven't played well on Thursdays and you're trying to get off to a good start. This just like, forget it all. And it's like, Hey, there's a ball on the ground stand, sitting on a tee, like go hit it far yeah. and then walk up to it and go hit it again. If Rory could just do that, he'd be the Rory McIlroy who's winning majors. Games. And that's the thing. We were kind of clutching at straws. Like, oh, is DJ going to be haunted by what happened at Western Straits in 2010? He does not care. <laughs> and, it, and, it's, and he's not dumb. He's not stupid. He just literally no. doesn't care. I, funny enough, before before we came on, I listened to the podcast you did um, with House. And you were talking about when you had to ask him about Paulina. And he was like... You know, what are you actually asking? You're like, I don't really know. I don't really want to ask yeah, exactly. it. I have to ask it. And it's like, I don't even know what I want you to say. So we'll just leave it. And it's like, that's how he makes you feel. Because you're like, you do feel silly asking him questions because he hasn't, it's not because he can't answer them. It's just, it's so natural to him. He goes out, he plays his golf, he wins once or twice a year. Um, yes, he knows his expectations, but he's pretty calm about it because he does it, right? And and it's and everyone said, oh, he's so natural about it. He's so, he's got such a natural flair for the game. Well, no, he has to work hard too. Like he will be out there grinding. Like it's just you don't see it because you don't expect him to. It's just you you generalize about DJ when you won't do that against anybody else. DJ makes it look easy. Rory makes it look hard. Yeah. I, I mean that's essentially what it comes down to. And other players, it's the same thing. Like uh, Jordan kind of makes it look, you know, like it's. A roller coaster. Really hard for him to make it be easy, <laughs> yeah. I, I think, is, is maybe the way to put it. But uh, DJ, we look at it as just like, ah, he's just an athletic freak, and that's why he's really good. Right. Well, no, he also practices a whole lot, and he's dedicated his life to playing the game, just like everybody else has. But we sort of look at him and say, well, you know, he's not really an analytical type of guy. Guess what? The, the entire mind, any, any sports psychologist or mental guru would tell you, the more you can forget about everything that's happened in the past, whether right. it's a bogey on the last hole or a loss that you had 10 years ago, the more you can forget about that stuff, the better off you'll be. And DJ has mastered that. DJ is a, a master, and it's not because he's dumb. It's because maybe he's the mentally toughest player that yeah, we've seen right. in a long time, which is just, yeah, I'm able to block out that stuff and just go you know, hit the golf ball and go hit it again. Which, again, if Rory could do that, if Justin Thomas could do that, there are a handful of players out there. Tony Finau. If they could just forget everything that's been written about them, been said about them, been expected of them, 
and just go hit the golf ball and see what happens, I think they'd all be better off. But again, that's way easier said than done. Yeah, I mean, look, DJ shot a pair of 80s in the middle of the summer last year and went on to the biggest <laughs> career, you know, step of his exactly. career. So, yeah. it, but I mean, just just one more player to mention that kind of mindset. I mean, we've heard from kind of like we hear a lot about Bubba Watson now. And, and I think Bubba Watson is one of the most fascinating players on tour. I know he gets a bad rep and I've spoken to Ted Scott a lot and, and he's kind of said that, you know, it's, it's undeserved. Like everyone was sort of like praying for Ted Scott when he was kicking off. And this guy has been dealing with anxiety and stuff for his whole career. And the reason he was good at certain places is because he was left alone. Like, you know, he, he would get to the Masters and because he was defending, you know, when he had the chance to win it when no one else thought he could, he was fine because he wasn't the favourite and he won it. And then he goes as defending champion, struggles. And he goes back, wins it again because no one cares about him. And then he said, like, and then his was all, like, picturesque as well. I remember Ted saying that, like, the thing he loves about Augusta is, like, the fairway is just, you know, outlined by the pine straw. So he knows exactly, he can visually see it. And then he goes to the Open Championship and he's like, where the hell do I hit this ball? Like, it's all just brown. Like, what, you know, what is it? And Phoenix is exactly the same. He's got the desert, so he's absolutely fine. And it's amazing what can make players tick. And I just use that as an example because I think, you know, that is how fragile a mind can be. And this is a guy that's won multiple major championships, multiple events on the PGA Tour. Um, it took Webb Simpson to snap a putter over his knee to actually get good with the, with the shorter putters. It's so fragile. And, and I think people think that Rory McIlroy should be... You know, he should be above that and that shouldn't affect him because he's so good at golf. But it always eats away in your head eventually and it just depends how you deal with that, I guess. Any of us who play, I mean, I, I'm playing off seven right now. I'm a very average golfer. When I go and play golf, I can tell, like, there, there are certain shots I have, certain moments where I'm like, oh, boy, I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> this one. Uh, someone, did, The other guy's just pressed and we were up and then now we're going to lose this. I got, a, I got an eight iron in here. I'm going to pull this into the water. And you just... You kind of talk yourself out of stuff, but you think, yeah, but the pros, I mean, these guys are so good. They can just hit any shot they want at any moment. No, like it's mental for us as amateur recreational players. It's mental for them too. In fact, it's probably a lot more to do with mental than physical or technical. The physical technical part, they can master that. I mean, they can figure that out. I'm going to practice seven days a week, 12 hours a day. And I'm going to, I'm going to know to the inch how far my six iron goes when there's a, a quartering 12 mile an hour wind <laughs> in my face. And, and they figure it out and they know what to do in those situations. But it's when they can't pull it off, I always, it's more mental than anything else. And so I, I, it's, it's amazing to me. It really is. You know, I, I think whether it's a Rory, whether it's a Bubba, whether it's a web, I mean, these guys all have, totally different mindsets towards the game there's no one way to do it. we always say there's no one right swing to you know yeah. how you hit the ball has to be the same as everybody else in order to do it right and the way you approach the game your mental approach towards it i think something different works for every player and again going back to rory i think he's trying somebody else's mental approach right, right. now and he needs to find what works for him yeah, I completely agree with that. Jason, I'm going to let you get out of here because, you know, it's been a, it's been a long chat and we, we, we scheduled a Ryder Cup chat and we're going into to all sorts now. And I think that we can Love it. we can do another separate podcast and all of this and uh, we'll have to do it again. We'll run it back and uh, look forward to maybe the 2022 season and see who, you know, who we're expecting to come out on top. But uh, thank you as ever. Check out Jason on uh, the Action Network. He's there all the time. Putting up great stuff, you know. Love your articles each week. Love the uh, the serious episode stuff that you do. Wish I could listen to it more, as I said to you before. <laughs> um, but no, thanks for having you, and uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. You're not missing much on the serious <laughs> stuff. Don't worry too much about it. Thanks, buddy. <laughs>